2: Last episode, I did a deep dive on Amazon AWS to determine if we could apply our first principle thinking to that cloud environment. My first take was that you could probably build fairly robust zero-trust and resilience programs, but would struggle with your intrusion kill chain prevention and risk assessment programs. By the way, that goes for Microsoft Azure, too. We're doing Google next week, so we'll see where they fall, but I anticipate that it will be similar. For this episode, though... I invited some experts to the CyberWire's hash table to find out what I got wrong last episode. What I discovered is that there is some disagreement between Amazon's really smart security experts and old guy security practitioners like me about the value of intrusion kill chain preventions in cloud environments. But that's okay. Disagreement and debate is how we find the edges for these kinds of complicated issues. I also discovered that the environments the cloud providers are building for us anticipate a DevSecOps world that the security community has yet to embrace. From my view, I believe their vision is correct, but the Network Defender community has a long road to hoe before we realize it. My name is Rick Howard. You are listening to CSO Perspectives, my podcast about the ideas, strategies, and technologies that senior security executives wrestle with on a daily basis. Joining me today at the CyberWire's hash table are two AWS security experts and one old guy security practitioner. From the Amazon side, we have my good friend and colleague, Merit Baer, a principal security architect at Amazon Web Services, and her colleague, whom I just met, Mark Ryland, from the Amazon Web Services Office of the CISO. These two also both graduated from law school before they became security experts, so they are about 20 steps ahead of me on any discussion. From the old guy practitioner side, we have another old friend of mine, Jerry Archer, the Sally Mae Chief Security Officer. Let's start with a new way to view the world. The first thing that old security practitioners like me need to overcome is to stop thinking about legacy networking concepts. The cloud is similar but different. And to take advantage of the benefits offered by the cloud, you should embrace the cloudiness of it all.
0: Here's Mark. The problem with cloud networking and security appliances has always been that the, person, the vendor or the or the customer who wanted to run some kind of a security stack could, could run it on a virtual machine and you could get packets to flow through your virtual machine. But that's not very cloudy because it's both non-scalable, like it can scale vertically. You can have a very powerful single instance, but that's still not that great. And all, nor is it very high availability because if that VM goes down, you could have a hot standby, and you could call an API and shift your route tables and so forth, and maybe within you know, seconds, if you're lucky, or minutes otherwise, you can get the packets to flow to the, set, to the standby. But that's all pretty kludgy and very non, non-cloudy and, and non, very non-native. In the last
2: episode, I spent a lot of time discussing zero trust between AWS subnets within a VPC or a virtual private cloud like rules that prevent the DevOps subnet from talking to the finance subnet. Mark suggests that we all raise our
0: sights a bit and focus purely on VPCs. And VPCs are cheap, are they're free, they're easy to set up and tear down, and, so, and they provide, you know, an inherent isolation. So if you're thinking about micro-segmentation, a lot of customers now just think of VPCs almost like subnets, right? They just kind of, you know, have a very limited set of things inside of a given VPC. Since we are using VPCs now and not subnets as our hermetically
2: sealed boundaries between workloads, you can connect them with these things called transit gateways or TGWs. You use these TGWs to build hub and spoke
0: virtual meshes. That's our mechanism for connecting up disparate VPCs um, across account or even, you know, across region So you don't really need something like Direct Connect, or or these more physical technologies that you know that map virtual to physical um, and allow customers to connect in. You don't need one of those to do a pure virtual interconnect and kind of create that hub and spoke model um, through the transit gateway. The transit gateway has been out for at least two years and maybe three years now, and that that is our official way that we do hub and spoke and create very. Can, you can create very large networks, you know. With, hundreds of VPCs connected together. There's a special mode where the DX object shows up as an object in your in your TGW and you know you set up route tables so that that becomes your truly the hub, the spokes can be VPCs or the spokes can be connections to your on-premises networks. With cloud deployments, the
2: very idea of a perimeter that you protect is morphing into something else kind of a perimeter
0: but not quite. Perimeters are still very useful but it's not like you have you know out months and months of running static infrastructure that you you know that that's you can do that and we, we built a lot of features to enable that but I'd say the most modern applications are the, you know these much more dynamic you know secure DevOps pipelines that where new deployments happen on an hourly basis and where you know the thought of like you don't think about so much defending the network as you do, making sure that the code you're deploying is very closely monitored. You look for anomalies, you deploy new code constantly, and if there is some problem, what you solve, the way you solve that problem is by a new deployment um, of of the application that that you've kind of built the security into. So it's a very different kind of mindset. It's true
2: that cloud networks are more ephemeral than your legacy on-prem networks with your big iron servers and hardwired power plants. With a cloud service like Amazon, all of that hardware is code now, as in infrastructure as code. And with the concepts like serverless functions, Amazon calls these things Lambda functions, you can greatly reduce the attack surface of your workloads by farming out processing jobs away from your VPCs and subnets. All of that is great stuff. But at some point, you still have to store data somewhere permanently in many cases. Wherever that is in your cloud provider's networks is the new perimeter. I like to call those things data islands because cloud customers put these things everywhere. The word perimeter kind of implies one spot, but data islands gives you the sense that there is more than one. Or as Merritt says,
3: The perimeter is dead, long live the perimeter.
2: As is typical in the cybersecurity domain, many of us have opinions centered around various network defender concepts that, at first glance, seem to clash with other practitioner opinions. But, when examined, we find that the clashing opinions aren't really based on disagreements about how to tackle the problem space. They're more about what we mean about the concept. In other words, as a community, we don't all share the same definitions to common cybersecurity concepts. Case in point, intrusion kill chain prevention. Here's Mark explaining why we don't need intrusion kill chain prevention in cloud environments.
0: And that goes also to the whole question of the the kill chain and, you know, kill chain prevention and all that. A lot of those concepts are kind of legacy concepts because they sort of assume a very static environment in which you have to protect against so-called advanced persistent threats. And I'm not saying any of that's going away overnight, but it's just it's a really different way of thinking about um, how you build a, a modern compute environment or, you know, application environment. So that is one view of the intrusion kill chain
2: strategy. And Mark is not alone in thinking this way either. So I'm probably wrong. Documentation from Microsoft Azure, Amazon AWS, and Google Cloud Platform all tend to ignore this staple of network defense that's been around since 2010. And if I understand Mark's explanation, he implies that the kill chain strategies only apply to government-sponsored continuous low-level cyber conflict operations or advanced persistent threat operations, APT operations. But if you just skim the MITRE attack wiki, you will immediately notice that adversary groups behind all offensive operations have to string together a sequence of steps, the intrusion kill chain, in order to be successful. General purpose crime, crime in the form of ransomware, activism, espionage, and cyber conflict between nation states all have to successfully negotiate some version of the intrusion kill chain to accomplish their goal. So our definitions clash. They are not wrong or right, just different. Here's Merit.
3: We think about um, behavioral ways that um, could be exploited. We think about how to make the secure thing to do the easiest thing to do. But like one of the hallmarks that I sometimes uh, come back to, for example, is our automated reasoning group, where you're actually using formal mathematics as a way to reason about what you know about your network or about your permissions. And this is just like an inherently cloudy thing because you've, now that you have infrastructure as code, you can do security as code. And like, if you believe in math, then this will resolve, you know, it's how we verify that our boot code is correct. It's how we, you know, so there are elements of that sort of kill chain mentality that are just, um, hinging on a set of kind of, um, of of points in time that may not be relevant now when you can know things in almost uh, real time and with with the, the degree of certainty that doesn't require you to go through a set of steps.
2: I'm completely on board to use math and science to predict when bad things are happening. But that strategy is passive in general purpose and not specific about how real cyber adversary groups operate. I'm not saying it's bad. It's fantastic, actually. I would throw all of those tools into the zero trust strategy bucket and start implementing right away. But just because the networks are built by software developers writing code and not by tired and old Unix graybeards installing and maintaining big iron servers in their own data centers does not obviate the attack sequence idea. And speaking of old graybeards, here's Jerry Archer, the Sally May CSO, talking about how he uses the intrusion
1: kill chain prevention strategy in his cloud. So we look for bad behavior in the environment, and we also look for known indicators of compromise through our SIM, which uses both our local SOC and our global and a global SOC provided by the vendor, who looks in looks for all indicators of compromise. So we use uh, what used to be Veridin, it's now part of FireEye. But we run we run constant purple teaming against our environment against all known indicators of well, not all known indicators of compromise but relevant indicators of compromise to look for someone trying to hack into our environment. One last
2: point. I mean, we know 95% of the attack sequences from all adversary campaigns. Again, just skim the MITRE attack wiki. Doesn't it make sense to deploy prevention controls across the intrusion kill chain for all of them? Sure, kill chain prevention in the cloud is different, no question. But the idea that network defenders, call them data island defenders if you want, can't install prevention controls in cloud environments for all known attack sequences seems incorrect. It feels like we are leaving one big prevention tool off the table that could significantly reduce the chances of a material impact to my organization due to a cloud cyber attack. Sally Mae is like a unicorn an established, long-running company that is completely in the cloud. A cloud native, as they say. There aren't that many
1: out there. Here's Jerry. We are 100% in the cloud, so all of our workloads run in AWS. We have segregated instances for each major application in the environment. We don't have a data center. We don't have any. The only physical devices that we have left are thin clients, about 200 laptops, and some routers in the, in the facilities, but basically everything now runs in AWS. In fact, most of our workforce now run on VDIs that live on servers that exist in AWS as well. We've been in the cloud now two years, fully in the cloud two years. I mean, we started transitioning about four years ago and we were 100% in the cloud uh, within a year and a half to two years. Jerry is not
2: completely in AWS. He does have some development projects going on in Azure, and they use the Microsoft SaaS application, Office 365. So consider them a
1: hybrid cloud user. We have some instances in in Azure. So there's a couple of things, right? One is we use Office 365. So clearly we use use software as a service that essentially runs in Azure, right? We do have some... um, development environments that run in Azure simply as a matter of, you know, project management, development and stuff like that. So it does, we have instances in AWS and we have a full security stack in AWS. So we can run workloads in AWS, I mean, I'm sorry, in Azure if we want. Uh, But we've, we've pretty much transitioned away from workloads in Azure and primarily run in AWS. But we maintain the ability to run in Azure simply so that we have a dual cloud solution. When I asked Jerry
2: about the single vendor problem, the idea that you would put all of your eggs in one basket for your IT workloads, he said that we needed to consider a different partnering mindset for cloud services compared to if we were buying a security appliance for your data center. Jerry said that he's established a long-term partnership between Sally Mae and Amazon that's designed on purpose to be multi-year. I mean, we're talking five years at least and probably longer.
1: Well, I mean, I think at the end of the day, the uh, the the service func- the services and the functions that Amazon offered were compelling. Uh, like I said, we maintain a security stack in, Asia, in Azure in case we wanted to move back. As you point out, it would be very, very non-trivial. I mean, you, you in essence are taking advantage of a lot of the capabilities within AWS. So uh, you're not going to easily move out of that. It would take us quite a while to transition back, or I'm sorry, transition over to Azure. Um, I, I wouldn't say it's years, but it's certainly a significant number of months it would take us to move back into Azure. So we're very committed to AWS and, uh, and, and they've proven to be a good partner so far. The opportunities that at AWS offer us in terms of technology and capabilities is, is superior. But even with that long-term partnership in place,
2: Jared provides some distance between Sally Mae and Amazon by using third-party security
1: tools. From a security viewpoint, we maintain a level of independence from AWS as best we can. We use tools that consume all of the AWS security stuff, but at the same time, uh, the tools that we use right on top of that event data. And therefore are somewhat independent. I mean, if we, again, our security stack in AWS and our security stack in Azure have a lot of common elements to it. So, it, you know, that we, we've tried to maintain a sort of a separation so that we have a level of independence and obviously a third party perspective on what's going on in our environment.
2: One of the great benefits of cloud environments is the characteristic to automatically scale based on the current situation. Like if you were Domino's Pizza, your workload would be at a level 10 on a typical workday. But on a Super Bowl Sunday, your workload would have to surge to level 10 times 100, let's say. The old way we did that in the cloud is with something called ECMP, or Equal Cost Multipath. It's a routing mechanism to achieve almost equally distributed link load sharing, in other words, you can share the workload across multiple EC2 instances. But here's Mark explaining why ECMP is not optimal.
0: For example, with ECMP, if you have a new node that's an equal cost path and you add that, then it, you rehash all the existing flows and you break a bunch of them to put them onto the new node. Where, where we don't do that, we keep all the flows you know, uh, stuck. The new and improved
2: way to build this capability in AWS is something called an API gateway. And this is important because if you want all of your EC2 traffic to pass through a scalable security stack somewhere, the
0: API Gateway is the way to get it done. A fleet of networking appliances can all be brought together in a cluster and we will spray the packets across them in a in a flow hashed fashion, keeping the flows sticky so that the you know any given connection goes to the same appliance, but as the as the load scales, we can automatically add more and more of those appliances. And as the load uh, decreases, we can take them out of the rotation. So basically, we have a way now to do a real cloudy version of networking appliances, whether they're security appliances or any other thing, um, using this technology. And it's, it's quite a breakthrough. So Palo Alto, Checkpoint, all the major players have now adopted this. And we've adopted it. We have a, a few, a built-in feature called Network Firewall, which is essentially layered on top of this, but we we make it available to our partners so they can do the same things. That's the way like routers do horizontal scaling, essentially. Or you can have, um, you know, like virtual, uh, it's a way of parallelizing network flows, basically. So in a way, API gateways act
2: like a load balancer for your security stack, and you can connect them to your transit gateways
0: or TGWs. It's exactly like a load balancer but what's not like a load balancer is it's not it, it, it looks like one so the, the the consumer who's sending packets sees one IP address. there's actually dozens of nodes potentially servicing that traffic. And then as the packets exit the far end of this cluster, they also the, the next hop sees one IP address. So it looks like one thing to the network, but it's actually a cluster. And the packets are sprayed across the cluster as they, as they traverse through to get the processing done on them. So that technology can be deployed, you know, between VPCs, between a VPC and an, a TGW. Um, so it basically kind of entry and exit from VPCs is where you can utilize um, this, this type of gateway. So that takes care of north-south traffic,
2: meaning traffic between the EC2 workloads and the Internet. But what about placing a security stack between two different VPCs—the so-called east-west
0: traffic? If you think of VPCs as kind of east-west, like I have, you know, a workload in X in VPC one, I've got a workload uh, Y in VPC two, they're connected through a transit gateway, um, then that type of east-west is supported today um, because it's you know VPC entrance and exit is where you can insert these networking objects.
2: The API gateway provides automatic resilience. If I did it the old way with the ECMP method, I would have to write code myself to monitor for overload conditions and then automatically deploy new instances of my security stack when needed. With the API gateway, AWS is doing the monitoring and scaling for me. And to bring this discussion back around to my data islands idea for a second, Sally Mae uses a networking trick to define a perimeter around their AWS assets. It's called a Software Defined Perimeter, or S-D-P. Here's Brian Embury from Pulse Security explaining what it is. Software Defined Perimeter, or S-D-P,
3: evolved from a U.S. Department of Defense initiative that sought to validate devices before they connected to the network, because connecting a device before validating its identity can lead to vulnerabilities. SDP enforces an authenticate first, connect second model where users and their devices are not allowed on the network without first establishing
1: trust. So we use uh, software defined perimeter in order to uh, obscure Sally Mae from the world. So without being pre authenticated, the only thing that you can see from Sally Mae is one port that would allow you to send your credentials into the SDP controller. And that's it. You can't see any part of Sally Mae. It's it's completely obscured from the world. So you can buy SDP both as a service, meaning you can actually buy, uh, essentially they will set up your EC2 instances in an SDP environment, or you can just run SDP, which is what we do. I have this
2: habit of referring to security practitioners as, I'm using air quotes here, network defenders. But in this new world of building cloudy networks in a DevSecOps context, Merritt points out that maybe it's time to retire the network defender label.
3: I had the same thought when you said network defenders. I thought, that's not really who we're hiring either. Like, think about the people who create, who build the security around what you're doing in cloud. It is not, quote, network defenders necessarily. That's just not a an archetype that persists um, with a lot of relevance. We're actually, you know, looking for folks who are DevOps people who, you know, like we can democratize security into the way that we uh, do everything. And you you have to, um, you know, it will only uh, constrain your organization to have siloed your sort of defense from your operations, from your innovation center. The only way to do this at scale, and we're talking about really big scale, if we're speaking from, you know, the office of the CISO at AWS, we're talking about you know, scale that is um, astronomical for, you know, Amazon itself. And uh, to really do that type of work at scale, it does have to be automated. And it also needs to be um, that inherently cloudy approach.
2: Since the DevOps movement started back in 2010, I've been thinking that security practitioners would have to change their basic DNA. Instead of having security skills with a little bit of programming experience sprinkled on top, the new security practitioners will be coders first with security sprinkled on after.
0: But according to Mark, that's probably the wrong model. It's not that security people turn into devs, but what we see is that you create teams of people with the right expertise and so the developer sits alongside the security person and they do mind meld and they build together the automation that, you know, is needed and so the security person's happy because they're not doing so much repetitive work. They're they're becoming a a requirements person for the developer it says, look, I, you know, seven, seven times a week I go do this stupid task and I check this and I check that. Can you automate that? And the developer says, yeah, I can do that. I, I wouldn't have known what to do, but now that you've told me, I absolutely know what to do. It's, it's cross-functional teams are, are, the, are absolutely the future. I, I'm reminded of a panel discussion I was on one time where uh, we were, people were talking about um, data science and how, Oh gosh, you know, where are we ever going to find these people that are, you know, that are statisticians, they know how to code, they know how to think about number, blah, blah, blah. And I said, you don't have to find anybody like that. You find four people, each of which has one of those critical skills, and you put them in a group and they do
2: amazing stuff together. I think Mark is onto something here. In hindsight, my idea of morphing an old Unix graybeard network defender into a DevSecOps wizard was at best naive and at worst really dumb. That said, the security community is a long way away from this DevSecOps team model. From my observations, I don't see a lot of organizations embracing it with any speed. We do have our work cut out for us. After two weeks of looking into Amazon's AWS, I have come to a similar conclusion that I came up with after looking at Microsoft Azure. There are many good reasons to move your workloads to the cloud just in terms of keeping your business competitive. For security though, two big reasons are that these cloudy environments can be better supported in terms of resiliency and zero trust than you are probably doing right now back on prem. The downside is that if you are going to pursue the intrusion kill chain prevention strategy, you'll have some work to do since neither Microsoft or Amazon have embraced the idea. You can do it, but you will have to install third party tools like Jerry is doing at Sally May. For risk, Cloud provider SaaS applications will give you plenty of telemetry to throw into your risk forecasting models, but forecasting risk is still a bit of a black art, and the cloud providers aren't helping you with that. And that's a wrap. This caps off a two-part miniseries on first principle thinking in Amazon AWS. Prior to that, we did two shows on Microsoft Azure. As part of those shows, I wrote deep dive companion articles that include significant reading lists. If you are looking for more information, you can find everything at thecyberwire.com slash pro slash CSO perspectives all one word. That's thecyberwire.com slash pro slash all one word now, CSO perspectives. The Cyberwire CSO Perspectives is edited by John Petrick and executive produced by Peter Kilpie. Our theme song is by Blue Dot Sessions, and the mix of the episode and the remix of the theme song was done by the insanely talented Elliot Peltzman. And I am Rick Howard. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this preview of CSO Perspectives, be sure to subscribe to CyberWire Pro. And get access to the rest of this episode, as well as all past seasons of CSO Perspectives, ad free. And you all know I love getting rid of the ads. Visit theCyberWire.com slash CSO Pro. That's theCyberWire.com slash CSO PRO to explore the many benefits of CyberWire Pro and to subscribe.